We are continuing in our study in the book of Matthew. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there now. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have some in the seat backs in front of you, and it is page 812. If you have an iPad or a smartphone that allows you to get the Bible, I would suggest that you turn to Matthew now, chapter 7. And for those of you who have memorized this passage, just open a Bible and pretend to go along as well, please. Matthew, Hebrew name Levi, was a Jew writing to Jews about a Jew. He was the son of Alphaeus, and he worked for the Roman government as a tax collector. Matthew was called personally to be an apostle by Jesus himself, and we know that he was in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Most scholars would agree that this book was written approximately 58 AD, and that fact alone attests to the supernatural and divinely inspired nature of the Bible. Because although written nearly 2,000 years ago, the Word of God is relevant today, it'll be relevant tomorrow, and it is relevant until Jesus himself comes back. The questions uppermost in the minds of the Jews of that day was, was Jesus descended from David? Was Jesus, what was his attitude regarding the Old Testament law? Did Jesus come to establish the kingdom promised in the Old Testament? Consistent with the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Jews at this point in history were looking for the Messiah to come, to reestablish the kingdom of David, to throw off the yoke imposed by imperial Rome. So when Jesus is talking about and teaching about and preaching about the kingdom of God, they're a little confused. They're wondering, is he talking about restoring the kingdom of David? And yes, he is talking about a kingdom, but not an earthly kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, a kingdom without borders, a kingdom without boundaries, but still sovereign over every tongue, over every nation, over every tribe. The Sermon on the Mount presents new laws and standards for God's people. Two weeks ago, the Reverend Dr. Bill Burchie taught about the characteristics of the members of this kingdom of God. And you remember that he told us that the members of the kingdom of God were to discipline themselves through obedience to God's word, and the enabling of the Holy Spirit to guard against and avoid having a critical spirit. Oh, what a good word. We live in a time and in a place where we are invited to judge without regard to fact, to have instant opinions, and to be critical at every moment, at every time, because after all, that is in fact our constitutional right, isn't it? to be critical, but we learn that one of the characteristics of the members of the kingdom of God is that we are not to have a critical spirit. Last week, Pastor Best taught us that 
that one of the characteristics of members of the kingdom of God is that they are persistent. Persistent in their prayers. God answers prayers, beloved, but sometimes the answer is no. And not now. Or not yet. But we still pray. We pray because we're persistent in trusting God. This is the other characteristic that we learned. And we are persistent in loving one another. Today, in the passage, we have the privilege of perusing. We are presented with several warnings regarding the kingdom of God. And I dare say today we have an opportunity to look at one of the most sobering passages in all of Scripture. It's a frightening passage, in fact. And we will, God willing, have a chance to look at that today. There are four warnings that are presented here at the end of the Sermon of the Mount. Today, we will consider three of these warnings. Each of the warnings is, features a paired contrast. Two gates, two roads, two crowds, two destinations. The first warning involves that of false paths. Let's look again at the text. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That word enter is in the aorist imperative tense, and therefore it demands a definite and specific response. This is a command. When he says to us, enter, this is not a suggestion. It's not an invitation. It is rather we need to do this. And what this passage illustrates to us that there are suggestions of two paths, but there is really only one way to God. And this wide gate is a false path. The wide gate, you see, is appealing and it's inviting. The wide gate accommodates. The wide gate has easy access. Oh, the wide gate, sin is tolerated and humility ignored. The wide gate is roomy and spacious. You can bring whatever you want through the wide gate. Pride, arrogance, passions, appetite, prejudice, bias, bigotry, no problem. Idolatry, materialism, you bet. Humanism, not a problem. You see, through the wide gate, there are no limits. There are no limits on lust. There are no restrictions. There are no boundaries. And guess what? Many enter this gate. This is the way of the crowd. Through this gate, there's lots of company. Everybody is doing it. Oh, Father. 
We thank you this morning for clarifying this for us, that just because everybody is doing something does not mean it is right. Just because something is lawful, beloved, does not mean it is morally right. Just because you can does not mean you should. We live in a day and a time where in some places in our nation, prostitution is legal. Acts of depravity are presented to us and it's called entertainment. And soon, mood-altering substances you'll be able to get from a vending machine just like you get a soda and a bag of potato chips. So wide is the gate, so easy, so accommodating. In fact, it is so easy, it's like being caught in the current of a slow-moving stream. You can drift in through this gate to the false path with little or no effort. But where does it lead? Where does this wide gate take you? Look again at the text. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and it is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. Beloved, this is the highway to hell. Through this gate, it ushers people onto a path that leads them away from truth and to eternal separation from God. There are false paths through this gate, and these false paths are crowded with many, many people. By contrast, he tells us the narrow gate. If we look at the narrow gate and the contrast, first of all, it's narrow. You're not carrying a lot of things through this gate, so what are the things that you need to drop, that you need to put down, that you simply cannot squeeze through this gate? Well, self-sufficiency, pride, arrogance. No, those things won't go through that gate. The things that will squeeze through are a broken and contrite spirit and a heart that is in desperate need for a savior. Going through this gate, you have to go alone. You can't take anybody with you and there's nobody that can endorse or take you through it. Your resume will not get you through this gate. Your works will not get you through this gate. Your awards will not pull you through this gate. And this gate, we are told, is exclusive. It is the only way to God. The only thing it says to us is that the path that it puts us on is not easy. The Christian life is not easy. The fact that it's not easy doesn't mean we should avoid it nor the fact that it's not easy mean that it is without joy. That's not true. Marriage is not easy. Can I get a witness? <laughs> why, why did only the women say amen? What was it? <laughs> Marriage isn't easy. It takes sacrifice and intentionality and transparency it takes submission and obedience to God's word. It's not easy, but there's joy in marriage. There's joy in having a helpmate and a companion. 
Parenting isn't easy. And you know, I think the thing that rips the heart of most parents, it's not when children are disobedient. Yes, that hurts, but it's because we know and we understand that those acts of disobedience are putting you on a path to dissipation and that that behavior will hurt you and therein what lies the hurt for most parents. The fact that we understand that that's the wrong path and that you will be hurt by that. No, beloved, this narrow gate, it's not easy, but we're not alone. God has promised us that he would give us grace sufficient to meet our needs. We're not alone. He told us and he promised us that he would never leave us and that he would never forsake us. And in fact, that there isn't anything that could ever separate us from his love. This is why it says in Romans 8 that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The gate is narrow, but God is there. And those who find it are few. The Bible says that those who have repented of their sins and accepted the gift of eternal life were called peculiar people. 1 Peter 2.9, and in this verse, Peter is not saying that Christians are odd or unusual people, even though the world often looks at us that way. What this passage is really communicating is that Christians, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, belong to God, that they are his possession. Another way of saying it is that believers are God's own special people. When it says peculiar, it's like saying something like, you know, in the Rolls Royce, there is a device whose sole job is to blow cool air onto the brakes. And that is peculiar to that brand of car. It is special to that brand of car. It is what makes it distinctive. And so we are, the word says, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation set apart We respond differently. We talk differently. Our values are different from the world, as well they should be. The gate that leads to eternal life with God is narrow. We enter that gate here on earth to take us to an eternal destination. What this text tells us and what it is teaching us is that the decisions we make now on earth have eternal consequences. That is a sobering thought. There is but one way to be reconciled to God. Repentance of sins and acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Trust and obey the word of God. It is remindful of that old song, God has a way. You can't go over it. God has a way. You can't go under it. 
God has a way. You can't go around it. You must come in at the door. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man comes to the Father except through me. Now, those on the false path would push back and say, well, how can that be? How can there only be just one way to God? That just doesn't seem right or fair that there is only just one way to have access to God. I suggest in that argument that the question is flawed. The question is not whether or not there is only one way, but why would a sovereign God even provide a single way? When you're in need, in real need, oftentimes you just need one thing. If you need a heart transplant, all you need is one donor. If you need a kidney transplant, all you need is one donor. Have you ever been locked out of your house, locked out of your car? That's fine, that's fine. Leave me out here by myself. I'm the only one who's ever done that. <laughs> locked out. All you need is one key. You ever been depressed, sad, downtrodden? Isn't it amazing how one simple act of kindness makes all the difference? One kind word is health to the bones. The question is not whether or not there's only one path. The question is, and praise God, that he provided a path for us to be reconciled to him. False gate, false path, the decisions we make here on earth have eternal consequences. Warning brings us to our second warning. Who's beckoning these people into this false gate? How are these people getting to this false gate and onto this false path? And he says, warning, look at verse 15. Beware the false prophets or the false teachers. This is our second warning. Beware of the false prophets. Beloved, false prophets are more than wrong. They're dangerous. The word here tells us that they are ravenous wolves. Now, I don't know where you're from, but the only thing to do about a ravenous wolf is to get away from him and to warn others. If somebody were to tell you there are ravenous wolves in that room, Who's going to say, well, let's go in there and look at them? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to pet some ravenous wolves. <laughs> you get away from them. You don't dabble in it. You don't listen to them. You don't indulge them. You don't expose your mind to them. They pervert thinking and they poison your soul. Now, there's nothing new about false teachers. Our enemy is in the counterfeit business. Whatever God provides, our enemy tries to counterfeit. 
Time will not permit us to illustrate that fully, but he's in the counterfeit business. And so if God has prophets and preachers and teachers, and praise God, he does, then there will be false prophets and teachers waving people into the false gate to keep them on the false path. Now, admittedly, a good counterfeit is hard to detect. They use orthodox language. They conceal hostility. They don't teach the narrow way. And they are very cleverly disguised. In the Old Testament times, prophets were often recognized by what they wore. Like Elijah, they wore rough, hairy, uncomfortable clothing. And it was this outward symbol of their heart's commitment to forgo comfort for service for the Lord. And that's why Zechariah says in 13.4, such men, they put on hairy robe in order to deceive. They put on garb to look like prophets. In the New Testament, shepherds often wore clothing made from the wool of the sheep that they protected. Now, this is what the text is referring to here. He's saying that these false teachers, these false prophets are disguising themselves. They're putting on the disguise, but note here, they are not disguising themselves as sheep. They are disguising themselves as shepherds. They're false teachers. False teachers in Scripture fall into three broad categories. Heretics, and they openly reject God's truth. Those that are apostate, they once followed the truth and now they've fallen away. And then what our text refers to here, deceivers. The Bible has a lot to say about deceivers. They are energized by deceitful spirits and the doctrine of demons. This is the teaching of 1 Timothy. They're motivated by personal gain. They're slaves of corruption. They oftentimes promote themselves through the use of celebrities to gain credibility. Now, since God is warning us against false prophets, warning us against false teachers, warning us, he also is telling us how to identify them. Yes, they're clever, and yes, they're deceitful, but he tells us we can know them. Look again at the assurance that we have in Scripture. You will know them. This is an insurance. You will know them. Implied here is that the Holy Spirit grants discernment and insight and wisdom. If you are looking and you know what you're looking for, you'll see them. You're not going to be able to tell by the way they walk or what they wear or even what they say. In fact, I don't think it's so much what they say but what aren't they saying? If they're not talking about the atoning blood of Jesus, 
This is a false teacher. If they're not talking about sin, this is a false teacher. If they're not talking about repentance, this is a false teacher. Where is the fruit in keeping with repentance? Or is it all about their works, their accomplishment, who they know? Where is the fruit of the Spirit of a life yielded to Christ in obedience? Where is the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit? And what is that in Galatians? The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How interesting it is that the fruit of the Spirit are those things that are expressed externally. That is, we demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in our interaction with other people. These aren't things that we do necessarily for and by ourselves. I can say, boy, I sure am patient with myself. I sure am kind to myself. I think I'll be gentle to myself today. What the Lord is telling us is that we are looking. Don't look at the size of the house or the year of the car or how many people come. The thing that we should be looking for and that that is discerning for us that are members of the kingdom of heaven is where is the fruit of the Spirit? The consequences for false teachers is simple. They're going to hell. That brings us to, in my opinion, one of the most sobering texts in all of Scripture, and that's verse 21. Read along with me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Let's stop there. This takes us to our third and final warning this morning. False followers. We've talked about the false gate that leads to the false path that is cheerleaded by false teachers, false preachers. And who's on that path? False followers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. There is knowledge. They know about Jesus. They are religious, but there's no relationship. It's kind of like somebody talking about what is a cheeseburger, and they say it is a layered sandwich with condiments. Okay. Let me tell you about a cheeseburger. It's a quarter pound of choice black Angus beef <laughs> that is flame broiled to perfection. 
And during the last 52 seconds that it's being flame broiled, choice Wisconsin cheese is applied to it so that it melts into every crevice and envelops the side of the burger. The lettuce has been kept in a crisper and so it's cool and crisp and the tomato is ripe and firm. The bun is toasted so that when you bite into it, the juice runs down your chin. I'm not telling you about something I read, I'm telling you about something I've experienced. And soon. <laughs> That's the difference between the false follower. They have head knowledge, they know facts, they've been to the seminars, they've written the books, but they're educated beyond obedience. They have no relationship with him. They don't know him. They haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. but they cry out, and this is so convicting, but Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do mighty works in your name? These claims are fantastic. Casting out demons, mighty works, prophesying. We can't linger here, but the choices are relatively simple. Satan's using them, or they're just con artists, or they're just deceived. The false followers are not so much about the business of deceiving others. They're practicing self-deception. They deceive themselves. They deceive themselves by what they say, by what they do, by false doctrines of assurance. Hmm. Beloved, conviction is not conversion. People will listen to sermons and oftentimes they'll think, well, I need to be kinder. I need to be more generous. I need to volunteer more. Conviction is not conversion. In this passage, we see the power and the sovereignty of God. It's Jesus alone who determines who is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Don't be deceived. Truth and righteousness in the kingdom of heaven are not determined by democratic decisions. We're not going to vote on who gets into the kingdom of heaven, nor will the clamor of the crowd build consensus in the kingdom of heaven. And here comes the most convicting part of this passage is that Jesus sees past the acts, he sees past the conduct, he sees past the speech, and he looks straight to the heart for the motive of why somebody does what they do. Oh, help us, Father. Do you serve in ministry? 
Why? Is it because it brings you attention and accolades? Does it make you feel good? Now, don't get me wrong. There certainly is joy in service. But we aren't controlled by our feelings, and nor do we serve for self-glory. On that day, the day of judgment, Jesus himself will judge our actions, our conduct, and our motives. This is so convicting. There are people who will stand before him convinced that they will be ushered into the kingdom of heaven only to be told, I don't know you. But, 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 but I went to church. I don't know you. But I served. I don't know you. False followers on a false path, encouraged by false teachers through the false gate. How do we know whether we're on the false path? How do we know whether we are a false follower? One, obedience to God's word. When you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you close the gap between when God speaks and we obey. Now, God speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through sermons. He speaks to me through my wife. <laughs> and as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have to close that gap between when I hear God speak and I obey. God's word is true. It's perfect. It's acceptable. We have nothing to fear from it. We don't have to hesitate to obey. And our role as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is to close the gap and be obedient. What about sin in your life? If you say that you have no sin, you lie. And the truth is not in you. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but praise God, it also says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, he'll forgive us our sins, and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What are you saying about sin in your life? Sin separates us from God, beloved. Our God is holy and there's no sin in him, so how can God be holy and yet reconcile sinners like you and I to himself? And this is the work of Jesus on the cross. You're a false follower if you are relying on anything other than the atoning blood of Jesus. You're a false follower if you're putting your hope and your trust in anything other than Jesus. Jesus. 
You're a false follower if you don't believe that when he was nailed to the cross, God measured out the full measure of his wrath on him so that Jesus would pay the penalty for our sins. But more than that, you're a false follower if you don't believe that on the third day he came out of that tomb and he sits now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus saves, beloved. He saves us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin in our lives. And one day, praise God, he'll save us from the very presence of sin. Now that's the good news. That's the light in the darkness. But we come to this end of the Sermon on the Mount and it demands a response. He clearly points out that there are two paths a false path and a right path. There is a wide path and a narrow way. There are false teachers and there's the truth in the word of God. And there are those few who are called and there are the false followers and it demands self-examination. Where are you today? This is not the kind of sermon that we point to other people and say, man, that would, that would be a good message for my neighbor to hear. I wish my cousin was there this morning. The truth, beloved, is that each of us now need to ask ourselves, do I really know him? Am I a false follower? If I stood before him now, am I confident of where I'm going to spend eternity? The love that God has for us is true. It's not false. The plan of salvation that God has laid out for us to reconcile us to God is true. It's not false. God died on the cross for our sins. That is true. And he rose again. We are called to repentance. If you live your life in a way that ignores God and doesn't acknowledge his sovereignty in all things, if you put your hope and your trust in anything and anybody other than God, then we need to repent. Repent of your sins. Drop off self-sufficiency. Let go of ego and pride. Drop idolatry. Get off the treadmill chasing the money and the fame and cry out to Jesus, save me, Lord, because only you can. This is why we're here today. It is a sobering message and a frightening message. Many will stand in front of him on that day and he'll say, I never knew you. Let's pray. Father, I've said what you'd have me to say. I pray now that your word would accomplish your purpose.
Our heart's desire is to reach out to those who are lost. We thank you for providing us access over the airways this morning through the internet. And for those who have assembled here and that you have brought us here with the divine purpose that we need to make a decision. Convict hearts, I pray. Stir up courage that they may respond in the way that you would have them respond now. For those that need to repent, that they would repent. For those that have backslidden, that they will put down the world and get on the true path of obedience. Help us now, we pray, Father. Save now, we pray. We'll always be quick to give you the honor, to give you the credit, to give you the glory. Now we pray in the matchless name of Yeshua, Jesus, our Savior and King. God bless you.